about this game than any other game in terms of that they're all the biggest game we could ever play. It's the only game we got. And so uh, we, it's a championship opportunity for us to go out there and play in an extraordinarily fun setting. And, and we, fortunately, we're at home and we're going to try to you know, max this thing out and go for it. Classic Pete Carroll there. Lots of Carrollisms jammed into a 10-second uh, soundbite as we get ready for the Seahawks to open their season Monday night on Monday Night Football at Lumen Field against the Denver Broncos. Welcome back to the Field Goals Podcast. I am your host, Dan Viennes, and I am joined today by managing editor of Field Goals, uh, Mookie Alexander. Mookie, welcome. How are you? I'm good, Dan. Uh, cannot wait for Seahawks football to get underway because uh, I think... As a Seahawks fan, and you being a Seahawks fan, we're in agreement that the opening kickoff game was highly enjoyable to watch. Oh, it was unbelievable. I, I watched the condensed version uh, when I got home last night, just watched all the highlights and the breakdown on uh, Good Morning Football. Oh, what a way to start the season. Um, great atmosphere there at SoFi Stadium for the the defending Super Bowl champs. Buffalo, of course, going in there and beating the Rams. Um, <laughs> let's talk about what we just heard from Pete Carroll. Just another game, championship opportunity, all that stuff. We can only play the game in front of us. Um, I mean, we've heard Pete Carroll lie to us before. This might be about one of the biggest lies we've ever heard. Not just another game in any way, shape, or form Monday, is it? No, absolutely not. This is the hottest ticket in town. Uh, I mean, I believe that I can't remember which uh, outlet reported this. It might be one of those... uh, outlets that really covers the the average ticket prices but the Broncos Seahawks game is the most expensive ticket across the entire league out of all the 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 16 home games so even more expensive than the Rams game and that's the unveiling of the championship banner and everything even more expensive than a Cowboys game I mean the tickets are going for 400 and up so it it is a big deal I mean it's Russell Wilson returning to Seattle in week one I mean it would have been a big deal if it was week week eight or week nine or week 16 but still how often do you have your franchise quarterback, your your future Hall of Famer, get traded in the offseason and then the very first game of the season is against the guy you just traded? Yeah. So this, it, it's probably in the eyes of some fans, this per, week one is the Super Bowl because I don't think Super Bowl aspirations for, for real are not, <laughs> I don't think they're really in the uh, the cards for, for the 2022 Seahawks. But, you know, there have been plenty of big regular season games, even if they don't necessarily have playoff implications, that the Seahawks have played under Pete Carroll. And usually that's when the crowd is at its most amped up and we get some surprising performances. Like It's very rare to see a, a Pete Carroll team, at least in the Seahawks era, have this big opportunity, yeah. you know, prime time. You've got the action green out. I, I would be surprised if they just fell flat on their face, even though they're at a pretty considerable disadvantage when you compare the rosters. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously the matchup with the Broncos, some of that was fate just because they were matched up against the AFC West this year and the Broncos were the home game. And so as soon as Russ was traded, you kind of knew that the NFL was going to do something to spotlight that game. It feels like, was it, um, wasn't it Green Bay the year after we won the Super Bowl and they opened it home on that Thursday? Wasn't it Green Bay was the opponent? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Percy Harvin had a big game. And, and is that maybe the last time that we had a matchup like this? Or I guess you could make an argument for the, the 49er game at the end of the year a couple of years ago that was for the division. But this is, and I, I suspect that this might be the most dynamic atmosphere we've seen in many years for a couple of reasons. One is I feel like as, as a, a longtime season ticket holder, 
a lot of Seahawks fans are in denial about this, but the atmosphere at the stadium had waned over the the middle 2010s. You know, a lot of new fans, a lot of people who had moved here from out of town to take some of the tech jobs here and corporate tickets and that kind of thing. It just didn't have the edge and certainly didn't have the volume. And you could see it in the results. The Seahawks hadn't, that home field advantage isn't what it used to be. But I noticed a little bit of a change last year. And I think some of that could be attributed to 2020. Fans didn't get to go to the game. That might've weeded some of that out, but also restored just some of that appreciation of what it's like to go see live football. And then I think we might've gotten some more weeding out this off season. Um, fans that maybe were borderline Seahawk fans. Now Russell's been traded. There might be more diehards in the stadium. I, I think it's going to be crazy. It's specifically, how do you think that's going to translate? There's a lot of question. Pete was asked about it. How, maybe put a percentage on it of how many people do you think are going to cheer, stand on their feet, give Russ the ovation? And how many, how many boos do you think we'll hear, if any, on Monday? I think we're going to hear some boos. Maybe not. I don't think it'll be the majority of the fan base. Maybe 20 or 30%. Enough for it to be audible. Now, of course, this isn't the NBA, so you don't have individual players announce when, when the road team comes out. They right. come out as a they team. Barely but, they barely, they kind of mumble it into the PA and then they just sneak out of the tunnel. Yeah. So instead, you, you're probably going to have a very early arriving crowd, as early as can be given it's Seattle traffic on a Monday afternoon. <laughs> yeah. But still, I think there are going to be a lot of fans showing up early, knowing that Wilson's going to be out there for the pregame warmups and, and, and everything else. I would expect that there would be a appreciation tribute video for Russell Wilson before the start of the game. I mean, the Patriots did it for Tom Brady uh, yeah. when, when Tampa Bay came into town last year. Yeah. And even though this end of the relationship was certainly not not the cleanest possible you still have to acknowledge everything that wilson's done for the for the team for the city i mean for the for the greater seattle community so th there has to be some sort of a tribute there i would think that there would be plenty of cheers for for wilson on that front because yeah. i mean it didn't all just wash away wilson was a major part of the seahawks's uh, great successes including the super bowl win uh, no matter what you say about the Legion of Boom and Marshawn Lynch, Russell absolutely played a major part in this. He, he, a mm -hmm. lesser quarterback, and they're probably not champions in 2013. Uh, so I s expect mostly cheers and audible boos. Now, when the game starts, that can be a different story because uh, as beloved as Russell is, he's now the enemy. So they, there, there could be a lot of heavy booing uh, whenever Wilson steps on the field, or at least for the opening possession, because this isn't like when Peyton came back to Indianapolis when he was with Denver because he left only because there was a possibility he might not play again. This is a very different situation. And, uh, you know, it, it's going to be one of the more electrifying atmospheres that the Seahawks have had for a regular season game in a long time. The Niners game a couple years ago, that was a de facto playoff game. Mm -hmm. This is just an interconference inter game that doesn't mean much for tiebreakers at the very least. It's just win-loss record and nothing else beyond that. But the atmosphere is going to feel like, to me, a classic Seahawks atmosphere from years gone by, including going back to the Mike Holmgren era, because the the, the legend of of the the, the twelves and and the noise really kicked up in two thousand five. I think we're going to get a two thousand five type atmosphere. Yeah, you make a good point. You're going to want to be in your seat for that first possession because uh, you know as as much as we're known for making a lot of noise and pressuring, you know, harassing the other quarterback and really allowing our pass rush to tee off and get that extra half count. Man, it's going to be crazy. And and it'll be interesting to see because 
you know, our experience as Seahawks fans the last couple of years is one of the knocks on Russ doesn't get off to great starts. Those first couple of drives usually aren't that, that productive. Um, I don't know if it's fair to say it'll set a tone for the game because I could easily see this game starting out in the Seahawks favor because of all that enthusiasm from the crowd. And then, you know, as the course of the game progresses and that normalizes a little bit than then uh, Denver getting more comfortable but uh, it's going to be fascinating to see you talked about the ending and the breakup um, we knew this was going to happen leading up to this matchup there would be more writing about that relationship and how it fractured over the years Brady Henderson of ESPN did a did a extensive piece and he's done a lot of reporting on this over the years um, and then there was another uh, piece on all Seahawks uh, that Corbin Smith took and kind of piggybacked off that, that focused a little bit more on the Schottenheimer-Wilson relationship. I don't know that it added anything new to the story. And I also didn't feel like from where I'm sitting, there was as much outcry from the fan base this time as there has been when these things were reported while he was a Seahawk. Because I think it, it just struck a nerve with a lot of fans in that case. And a lot of people accused the the media of making something out of nothing. Now we know that all that reporting is accurate, but Russ did come out yesterday. And one of the big pieces is we, we had knew we had known for a couple of years that the Seahawks had talked to the Cleveland Browns in 2018 about the number one pick. What came out in this story that I don't think had been reported until then was that we also talked to the Cardinals the next year about the number one pick. And we would have apparently or reportedly taken Kyler Murray with that pick. Russ did come out in his Zoom call yesterday and acknowledge that the Seahawks had tried to trade him multiple times. Was there anything that you took from this piece that changed any of your perception about how this divorce kind of progressed over the last couple of years? Yeah, I would say that Brady's article was really well done. It presented a lot of the old information, but in a different way. And then there was some new stuff, like supposedly Wilson was upset over the fact that the Fal- in the Falcons game in 2019 that Seattle was up 24 nothing at halftime. And then the game became a little bit needlessly close at the end, and Wilson only threw five passes in the second half. That was the Matt Schaub and- game, wasn't it? Yes, where, yeah. where Matt Schaub, you know, the pick-six machine, I think, only threw an interception to Michael Kendricks, but he threw for like 450 yards. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, that was 2019. That was, I think, the low point of the, the Ken Norton era for as far as defense that season. But that Wilson was supposedly upset over the way the second half is handled and might have cost him, a, a, you know, th- some votes in the MVP race at the time. I, I would hope that's not true, if only because if you look at the timeline, the week before was the Ravens game. And Lamar Jackson might not have had a great passing game statistically, but he rushed for like 115 yards and, and a go-ahead touchdown. So, And Wilson didn't play particularly well. Jackson grabbed the lead there and never looked back. Mm-hmm. There was nothing Wilson was going to do in the second half against the Atlanta Falcons that would have made any really significant difference in the voting. So I hope that bit is not true. Uh, what I can gather from the way that these last few years panned out, so especially with the trade rumors that were swirling in 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, um, beyond Mark Rogers seemingly being the typical annoying sports agent, I, I feel like as much as the fan base loves to to beat up on P- Pete Carroll and assume that it's Pete who didn't really want to commit to Wilson, it might actually have been John Schneider this whole time. And I say that because you think about where Schneider's background is, the Green Bay Packers. Yeah. And he was, I'm pretty sure, in the front office when the Packers had Brett Favre and, you know, they were still a playoff team entering the 2005 season. And I think that year went poorly for them. They drafted Aaron Rodgers. Yeah. And then the drama between Favre and Rodgers and Favre is million 
you know, threats to retire before retiring the first time. Uh, you know, there, there was some tension there. But I think part of it for Schneider in his defense is due di- diligence. Like if there's a quarterback you absolutely love, and this is coming at a time when Wilson's contract, you know, during that point in time was coming up, do you want to extend or do you want to see if you can get another quarterback that you can get on a rookie deal as opposed to paying Russell Wilson X million a year? So that has manifested itself into, I think, you know, the, the conclusion we got where do the, do the Seahawks want to pay Wilson $45 million a year into his age 37, 38 season, or do they want to go with a stopgap at quarterback in 2022, go for a rookie in 2023, and kind of start the rebuilding process, if you will, next year more so than this year? Yeah. Uh, so in conclusion with, with that piece, it's, it's well done. Again, a lot of information that we already knew. But the way that it was framed, I think that, you know, Schneider might not have been as totally committed to wanting to keep Wilson, not because of dislike of Wilson or anything, but just the GM brain in him. You always got to explore options, whether that's Mahomes or Allen, what have you. I don't know if they would have taken Allen at number one overall, because I don't remember too many mock drafts having Allen at number one over Baker Mayfield. No, maybe he for sure. For some reason, but it's the Seahawks. And the last this past draft aside. It would have been fitting if the Seahawks managed to trade Wilson, get the number one pick, and then pick somebody who wasn't expected to go number one. That would have been really right in line, extremely on brand for this organization. But it didn't happen. And, you know, we're in this situation, which is not enviable. But, yeah, based on how the last few years went, the divorce, as Doug Baldwin said, was inevitable. Well, and I feel like this is going to be the story that's going to continue to be told, depending on how the two divergent storylines go of how the Seahawks rebuild progresses, who their next quarterback is, and how Russ does in Denver. You know, those that's going to that's going to evolve over the next couple of years. But we're not going to hear the whole story until after all these players are done with their careers, after Pete Carroll's retired, after Russ is out of the league, and 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 maybe it would maybe not even until John Schneider's kind of distanced from his role someday in Seattle. It'll be a fascinating 30 for 30 someday. What I took, uh, not so much from this piece, but I thought when Russ signed his deal two weeks ago, $245 million, $165 million guaranteed, less guaranteed money than Kyler Murray, much less than Deshaun Watson, certainly. I, I thought that was, I thought that story was a little bit of a, snooze fest. I was shocked at how, how little news it generated. It was almost like it was, it wasn't expected. Nobody was expecting to see two with two years left on his deal that they would sign him to an extension that quickly. But what struck me there, and I think it's woven into what Brady was talking about and some of his anonymous sources uh, implied is that Russ was willing to accept less money because for a moment, there there was talk over the last couple of years that Mark Rogers was going to push long and hard to be revolutionary in how he negotiated Russ's next deal and have it tied to a percentage of the salary cap. Um, but what I took is, and and Russ even came out and said this, and and we've heard things from the new coach Nathaniel Hackett that it, that uh, weave into this as well. Russ was willing to take less money because he's getting control. He's getting that say. He gets to have his hands on everything now including potentially, it sounds like maybe even some personnel decisions down the road. That was something Seattle was never going to give him. And that tension was highlighted in this article as well. Yeah. And Wilson has been not so subtle with that. 
uh, over the last couple of years, you know, tired of getting hit too much when Schottenheimer got fired. He said yeah. it was important for him to have say in, in the next offensive coordinator that they eventually got in Shane Waldron. So, and he's been vocal about wanting more stars, you know, wanting more difference makers. And that's how, well, if you got Greg Olson on the team, it's as ill-fated as that worked. But it's not like this is something that was, uh, you know, that the Seahawks totally ignored. I mean, they traded for his best, for, for his good buddy, Jimmy Graham, back in, in 2015. And they gave away pretty much the best center that this team has had in years. Yeah. And Max Unger in the process. So I, I guess what he's looking for is the type of... Uh, the type of power that uh, a Tom Brady or Peyton Manning would would yield, and yeah, there, there is a, a, a obvious element of power struggle here. Whether that's Pete and Russ or John and Pete and Russ, uh, you know, that's the deal. Where it, we, we know that Carroll has got the general control, the primary control of the roster. How much was he willing to see to to Wilson to be like you know player slash GM? And I don't think that is is where he wanted to go. And for for Wilson in in Denver, yeah, the, the money is is less guaranteed. It's 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 a, a different situation there compared to some of the other quarterbacks who have gotten paid. But if it means that he has a little more um, handle of how the offense operates and who is is who is signed and who improves the offense, etc., I think that's the type of trade off that he he would have preferred as as part of this deal. Because of course he had his options of where do you want to be traded. You know, New Orleans was an option. That That's another thing from Brady's article that was interesting, that, um, you know, New Orleans and Washington, the, the, the commanders were, were interested in trading for Wilson, mm-hmm. but Schneider only wanted Denver, and Wilson was seemingly was set on Denver. But unlike Washington and New Orleans, who didn't really have quarterbacks worth trading for, I don't think that the Saints would have um, traded for Jameis, traded Jameis Winston away because he was he was a free agent, was he not? Yeah. So that, you yeah, know, so that wasn't an option. And nobody's trading for Taysom Hill to be yeah. an NFL quarterback. Right. Washington didn't have Wentz at the time. So Taylor Heineke, absolutely yeah, not. So, and Snyder said, or, or it's claimed that Drew Locke was the, was the quote prize, I guess, you know, to, to see if Locke can be the next starting quarterback. So that bit was interesting to me <laughs> as far as can we get a quarterback out of this in return? And that's, I guess, Denver ended up being the best suitor. Locke, obviously not good enough to win the starting job in the eyes of the front office. But, yeah, circling back to, to the power struggle, that, that I think that's probably the bigger deal more than anything else, that Wilson wanted more control of the offense and how he views the way he should play philosophically and how the offense should run has run counter to how Carroll has wanted to run the offense over the years. And it really came to a head in the middle of 2020 with the let Russ cook year and yeah. how well he started. Mm-hmm. abnormally too because his start to the to that year was unlike most other seasons that he started and then the turnovers happened and then it got rained in they didn't pass as much they still passed quite a bit but that obviously created friction and and, and michael over in the athletic had also brought that up so it's yeah. really all come to a head and now wilson gets to uh do his thing in denver i guess I'll tell you it again it's going to be a fascinating storyline to watch what happens in denver because they they no hesitation. They 100% just put all their eggs in his basket, hits their wagon to him. They're giving him control. They gave him all that money. Their coach hasn't even coached a game. Their defensive coordinators never called a defensive play before. The GM's brand new. Um, well, he's been there a year. It's if this doesn't work, they're gonna have to clean it. Brand new owner paid a record $4.6 billion for the team. If this doesn't work and this isn't a playoff team in the next two or three years, or Russ's skills decline or or allowing him a piece of control turns out to be a disaster, everyone loses their jobs. 
Yeah, it, it's possible. I mean, this is, of course, Seahawks fans are probably going, man, Wilson's on another team. We don't have to get, well, you know what? Denver gave up two first round picks. Seattle already used one of them. They have the 2023 first round pick as well and their second round pick. So there's every reason for just this season alone to be interested in how the Denver Broncos perform. Mm-hmm. So, and if you're into legacies and, and there are going to be factions of this fan base or like Team Pete versus Team Wilson or Team Seahawks versus Team Wilson, and it could definitely impact the legacies of both. And Wilson has banged on about his, his legacy for, for God knows how long. Yeah. Uh, but if this doesn't work out in Denver, then, I mean, I think his Hall of Fame spot is pretty secure, but it could also impact how he is perceived by fans and, and media and, and, and whomever uh, with the way this trade was engineered and him as a quarterback and how well his game can age well into his 30s. And then the flip side is, if Wilson balls out in Denver and the Broncos are legitimate Super Bowl contenders and the Seahawks struggle this year as expected, plus they don't find that next franchise quarterback, it could end up looking like an, a, a very bad mark on, on what is an otherwise very sterling resume for both Pete Carroll and John Schneider. So, yeah, yeah it, for, for as long as is Wilson's still in Denver and for as long as the Seahawks don't have a franchise quarterback and Carroll and Schneider are still here, this trade is going to be highly scrutinized, not just by us as fans, but really by the NFL as a whole because this type of trade for, of, of a clearly elite quarterback who, who we assume is still in his prime that just doesn't happen every year. No, I mean, it, it is so stunning to, to, to think about how few trades of quarterbacks that we've had over the last couple of decades who are worth anything. And then the, the, the hammer gets dropped on March 8th, and it's to the team that Seattle beat in the Super Bowl. It's to the yeah. team that they're playing in week one. Um, so, yeah, there, there are so many storylines at play that will make it fascinating, even if you're tired of hearing of it. You just got to uh, hang on for another 17 or 18 weeks. Yeah. And I will say this, as much as I even personally have gotten kind of tired of Russell's act and, and just the cliches and, and his robotic nature over the last few years, I, I thought he handled his press conference yesterday or Zoom call really well. I mean, was, the things he said about the city and how much he revered it in his time here and complimenting Coach Carroll, I thought he nailed it. You know, I thought he really handled that well. And uh, kudos to him for doing that. Uh, let's talk about the game, should we? Oh, there's a game? <laughs> the game within the game, right? Teacher against student. And I want to lead with this. This is another comment from Pete Carroll at his press conference yesterday, talking about how maybe the first game out of the shoot, they might have a little bit of an edge because of their familiarity with the opposing quarterback. You know, we have a lot of things that we're going to do and a lot of things that we, we have a ton of information. We have as much information as we've ever had going into a game. And uh, hopefully that information and the process of getting to here uh, you know, we can, we can capitalize on. You know, I always love playing the game of trying to parse Carol's words and, and I especially like watching his press conferences. Cause sometimes you can tell by little looks on his face. He kind of, as he was saying, this looked like the, the cat who knew he had the bird cornered, right? Like, I don't think Pete would ever be overconfident, but there, isn't there something to be said for the fact that nobody knows Russell Wilson, his strengths, weaknesses, and limitations, as well as Pete Carroll, and that that might help them in, as far as the defensive game plan goes? Yeah, I mean, it's one thing if they have the talent. They, they might not have the talent or at least the, the established talent to necessarily stop Wilson. There are a lot of inexperienced guys who are going to be in their first NFL game on Monday, so that could be a, a difficult night at the office for them. But schematically, and, and, and just game planning for Wilson – of course the Seahawks are going to know better than anybody else. 
And for, for Pete Carroll, he's, he's watched Wilson from day one. He gave him the starting job in week one of his rookie year. And thankfully, because Wilson has been so durable over the last decade and only missing a few games of his career, they're not short on tape, yeah. on game tape, on practice tape. They, they know what he's great at. So they got to take away the deep ball. Um, and, of course, we, we've seen some stats about Wilson against two deep safeties and whether the Seahawks would be wa- wanting to gear, their, gear themselves towards keeping Diggs and Adams back there and trying to force Wilson to challenge the middle of the field where historically he has not been willing to throw that right. much. You know? and, and also, to me, another key is the pass rush. And if the pass rush can get there, and Denver's offensive line, not tremendous, but also not terrible. Um, Garrett Bowles used to be like, you know, every week he would have five holding penalties and eight (laughs) false starts. That was basically the Charles Cross preseason game against Chicago, but, you know, over the course of a regular season. But um, if the pass rush can get to Wilson, one thing that was also brought up in Brady's article by a couple of uh, anonymous front office people that I have felt for for a bit is Wilson's mobility. It's not, you know, Philip Rivers level. He, He can still move, but it's a lot different than when he was a read option threat. And you notice he hadn't been really keeping them too often the last couple of years. And I think that his speed has been going on him since maybe 2017. And that's interesting because 2017 would be the year that he was the running game because mm-hmm. Lacey was, you know, well overweight and unable to get going. And then Rawls and everybody else was ineffective. The O-line was terrible. Wilson was running for his life. But 2018 through present day, that open field speed, not as great as it used to be. And we've seen some of the sacks that he's taken. He's always been a frequently sacked quarterback. But as far as him dodging defenders or, or, or doing that spin move, I mean, as you get older, and that's going to be my concern for a lot of other quarterbacks who play like Wilson, as you get older, is that going to hold up? Yeah. So, of course, they want to keep Wilson in the pocket because Wilson can still do incredible damage outside the pocket. But in the pocket, if they can fluster him, like if he's in the pocket and he's got hours to throw, he's still going to carve up Seattle. He'll carve up any team. But if he's kept in the pocket and they can generate pressure, especially on the interior, then I think that would be huge for Seattle because, you know, with quarterbacks, you think, okay, you got to have your left tackle, your right tackle. You got to protect the protect the edges. I think for Wilson, especially since he doesn't really challenge the middle of the field and and given the way that he, he tends to leave the pocket, collapsing the pocket from the interior to me is is greater is a greater task than just trying to get him on the edge. Yeah. Because yeah. it's it, it's harder for any quarterback to escape when the guards and and centers are unable to block dudes on the on the inside. Yeah, and you mentioned it. Like they've, you know, they got Bowles at left tackle, Billy Turner at right tackle. Um, their the interior offensive line. There's some high-ish draft picks in there, but they're all young. Um, and so you wonder if maybe that's where Seattle can attack is with that interior. Uh, Shelby Harris going against his old teammates. Uh, what fascinates me about what's going to happen on Monday isn't, um, and I'm glad you touched on the middle of the field thing. I can't wait to see, because Russ knows. Russ knows that that's what they're going. It's just a the ultimate cat and mouse game. Is Russ going to try to attack the middle of the field more because he knows Seattle's going to give him that? But also, he's talked a lot about, and we've heard Nathaniel Hackett talk this week too, about giving Russ control of the offense. And Russ for years has been pounding the table and campaigning for more up-tempo uh, and, and more no huddle so that he can call the plays on the field. So not only do Pete and Shane Waldron and Clint Hurt and all those guys know physically what Russ prefers, what he doesn't prefer, what throws he can make and what he doesn't like, but also 
they know if they had handed more of the reins over to him in a no huddle offense, what his tendencies would be and how he intends to call a game. It seems to me that if, if any, and you can say this about any game in the NFL on any given week, if there's any chance for the Seahawks to be competitive in this game, it's they have to take advantage of that crowd early. They have to get after Russ. They have to confuse him a little bit, and then they have to run the football. So let's talk about the Seahawks offense. How capable do you think they are going up against a Denver defense that we really don't know what they, they're going to look like either of controlling the clock, running the football so that the quarterback doesn't have to be asked to do too much. Yeah. Offensively, it's going to be a struggle because Geno Smith is probably just going to, I think they've really just hammered the turnover bug out of him. Now we'll see if this games, you know, the set of games that he played last year was just a, too small a sample size to make any strong conclusions, but we, it wasn't like he was turning it over in the preseason either. He didn't turn it over but two times in his, uh, you know, filling in for Wilson last year. When he was with the Jets, he, he couldn't stop giving the ball away. But I suppose over the years, you know, you're learning from Philip Rivers, you're learning from Eli, you're learning from Wilson. Albeit, you know, Eli is known to give the ball away a couple of times himself, but yeah. still, maybe Geno has become a good enough quarterback that he can not make some of the careless decisions that he made very early on when he was with the Jets. So in lieu of an effective passing game, which I think, you know, for, for Gino to succeed, you're probably not going to see a lot of deep shots, um, probably a, a lot of check downs to backs, a lot of quick throws to Lockett or Metcalf, try and generate yards after the catch, which has been a major problem for the Seahawks for years. They got a considerably better last year with Shane Waldron. I think that is a, a good thing that Waldron got the yards after the catch up. Because I feel like Yak can be schemed. Look at Kansas City's offense. Yeah. I mean, of course, it helps when you have Hill and Kelsey at the time, and now it's just Kelsey. But their schemes, and, and you could say with most read op- Andy Reid offenses, they find ways to get their guys in space so they can do damage after the catch. Um, so the running game, if the offensive line looks the way it did in preseason, because unlike most other teams, Seattle played their first team offensive line, or at least projected, a lot more. Than, than most other teams. So we yeah. got to see a lot of cross. We got to see a lot of um, Austin Blythe. Mm-hmm. We saw Damian Lewis up until his injury, and thankfully it, it wasn't as bad as we thought. Um, Abe Lucas, we assume, is going to be the starter. Um, and even if he isn't, Jake Curran started a few games last year. And then you have Gabe Jackson. If they could continue that success of the offensive line, the running game I think will be key because the running game was one of the few bright spots of this preseason. It was one of the few bright spots and consistent parts of the office towards the tail end of last year. Rashad Penny, if he can sustain his success, which is not being so indecisive in the backfield, just as, as soon as you see an opportunity, go, because we see his acceleration is really good. He, he's a, a graceful runner, if I could put it in, in such a way. And unfortunately, it doesn't look like we'll have Kenneth Walker, but DJ Dallas and Travis Homer, um, they've been very good role yeah. players. I mean, Homer as a receiving back and Dallas, too. They could both be good receiving backs, but where Homer's impressed me is more of his between the tackles running. Because I didn't think he was, well, he wasn't good in his rookie year, and he's gotten steadily better on that front. So, you know, Denver's run defense, I don't remember how it was last year. I don't, uh, I'll pull up the ranking at some point, but it probably was not a strength. And uh, running, path- to, I did look this up. Uh, overall, in points, points allowed, they were third in the NFL, but they were 18th against the run. They gave up about 112 yards per game. Yeah, so, and of course, they, they might have been third in points allowed, but we know that the offense absolutely did them in. Yeah. Um, and they've got talent on defense, and, but I think it's more towards the back end. I know in the front, they got Randy Gregory, 
and uh, Bradley Chubb is healthy again. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be, those two are going to be very big tests <laughs> for the rookie good, tackles. Yeah, Welcome to the NFL, cool. kids. Yeah. But in the secondary, Justin Simmons, one of the better safeties in the league. Yeah. Patrick Sertan, the second, if, oh boy, that, that's going to make both of us feel old <laughs> just, just to hear that. <laughs> um, but he, he looked promising in, in his rookie year. It'd be interesting to see if he's going to cover Metcalf, if he's going to cover Lockett. Will he travel with either one of those two receivers? So if there's going to be an area Seattle's going to try and exploit, it's going to be Denver's run defense because there's. I think we're going to see them try and run the ball more given who's at quarterback. But also, and there's been a lot of debating over the effectiveness of running the ball versus passing the ball. It is a passing league, absolutely. Within the context of the Seahawks offense, the rushing attack has to function. If it doesn't, it's going to put too much on Geno. And of course, if they fall behind, that cannot happen. If they're down two touchdowns or something and they're in a position where they have to throw the ball, then it's going to be a long night at the office. But if the game is relatively close, if they can control the clock, if they can keep Denver's offense off the field and convert their third downs, well, really forget converting third downs, avoid third down. If they can be effective on early downs, whether through passing or running, then the Broncos could be in for a surprise. And it is week one. I, I know you know the Bills blowing out the Rams was 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 something to see, but Week One in general produces a lot of wacky results. Yeah, wasn't it a couple of years ago the Jaguars beat the Colts in Rivers' debut with Indy, right. and then they 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 ran the table of L's the rest of the season. Or I remember um, Kansas City was like two and fourteen the year they beat a Titans team that made the playoffs, or maybe it was the other way around. Tennessee might have beaten Kansas City. So Week One we're starting we're starting new. And because preseason is now even more useless than ever as far as determining, okay, this first-team offense is playing three quarters. Now it's first-team offense is lucky to play a series. There's a lot of guessing going on the first couple weeks of the season. So we may be in for some surprises from Shane Waldron and Clint Hurt, but especially Waldron because, again, we, we would like to see the defense try and put the clamps on Russ. It'll be difficult. But if the offense can't sustain drives, then the defense can be as Herculean as they want they're probably going to end up with a loss. Well, and if they pay too much attention to Russ, you know, we haven't even talked about Denver's ground game with Melvin Gordon and Javante Williams, two really quality backs. That's something they have to obviously, you know, play well there too. It's one other thing that the game within the game that fascinates me as well. And uh, had to look up how to pronounce this name, but new defensive coordinator for the Broncos, Ajiro Aviro, not a household name. He's been in the league 14 years, but, the last five years, he was a secondary coach and passing game coordinator on defense for the Rams. So he and Shane Waldron, obviously, have been in meetings together, know each other well. So, you know, you think about how what's going on there behind the scenes as far as game planning goes, trying to trying to figure out how to attack someone that they think they know what their tendencies are. And uh, in Aviro's first game as a play caller, there's no, of course, it was Ed Donatel was the, the defensive coordinator there last year under Vic Fangio. And and, uh, and of course, we know that Pete tried to hire him away and that they've switched their scheme to some more three, four principles as well. Um, it'll be interesting to watch. And you make a good point. They they do have Denver's most dynamic players on defense are in the secondary and on the edge. They really lack a, a game changer kind of difference maker on the interior defensive line and also the interior of that linebacking core. So it'll be interesting to see if they attack that. Given that as fans... We haven't seen this Rams offense as it was advertised, as we were expecting it. And as we saw last night, even though it wasn't as effective as the Rams would have liked it to be, we see how much they thrive in the middle of the field and they use those in-breaking routes and they use tight ends. To me, 
that's one of the things I'm going to be watching the most closely tomorrow is regardless of how well or poorly Geno Smith plays individually is how the offensive scheme looks and how are we going to see more of that Ram centric type offense we were promised that we didn't really see at times last year because it just wasn't something Russ was comfortable running. Yeah. And of course with, with the Geno offense, it's not going to be the same as the Russ offense. So I still expect to see a lot of play action. That's going to be the staple of this offense to, to, to use the play action, whether the running game works or not, we can see that play action can work very well just with the, the threat of trying to run the ball can lead to poor eye discipline from backers and defensive ends. And it could totally wreck a play on the defensive side of the ball. But, you know, the, the things that Wilson didn't do a ton of on a consistent basis, challenge the middle of the field, use the tight ends, check it down to running backs. Mm-hmm. That's probably what we're going to see a lot of out of Geno. What we're not going to see a lot of deep shots, you know, the, the passes that are like in the intermediate part of the field, you know, 20, 25 yards, because, you know, Smith th- can throw a nice ball, mm-hmm. but, He's just, he's not going to be on Wilson's level as far as accuracy down the field. What Wilson does and has done over the years is make the really difficult throws look so easy. And then he could say one of the frustrations of Wilson is he will turn down easier throws to make the more difficult throw. And it's benefited Seattle in many ways. And it's also been a frustration point for for some of the losses and some of the the, the off days offensively. So, yeah, this is a big moment for Waldron because it, it, you know, he got hired to, to, transform the offense and hopefully we would see Russell Wilson in the McVeigh like type of scheme and week one of last year against the Colts we thought wow this is everything we wanted they're 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 throwing effectively they're running oh it looked great (laughs) they're going up tempo they're still keeping their shots they're getting Gerald Everett involved yeah and then uh some point the second half of the Titans game the the spigot got turned off but I think Waldron might have found something with this running game Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be huge for what Carroll wants. And it's essentially one of the only ways that the Seahawks can sustain any sort of offensive success throughout the season is if the rushing attack can work. Now, what Seattle's got to prepare for is if teams have zero respect for the passing game, then they're just going to load up the box and and just key in on the run. And maybe the best case scenario for the Seahawks is that the run game is so dominant. And that's what I think a lot of teams would, would want, whether they're pass heavy or run heavy. If your run game is so dominant that the other team knows you're going to run and they still can't stop it. Think of the 49ers and Kyle Shanahan. Then, you know, you're, you're, you're cooking with gas. So yeah. that's my biggest optimism point for the Seahawks. Will it manifest itself in, in the first couple of weeks of the season? I don't know, but uh, I am fascinated to see how Waldron schemes against this, this, Broncos defense that uh, I, I, you said they were third in points allowed last year. I guess advanced metrics had them, you know, kind of in mediocre below average. I don't know how much of that admittedly was just the offense was killing them so much, whether it was Bridgewater or Lockett quarterback. Yeah. It made it harder for the defense. So sure. with Wilson, hopefully it can make things better uh, for them on the defensive side of the ball. Man, I just hope this doesn't look like the opener in 2019, you know, when they were going up against the Cincinnati Bengals at home and a brand new head coach in Zach Taylor. And even though they knew his background came from the Rams, you know, they didn't know what his tendencies were going to be. And and they played the most conservative game on both sides of the ball I think I've ever seen. It was one of the most boring. They eked out a 21 to 20 win, but it was one of the most boring games to watch from a good football team that I think I've ever seen. And, and I hope, you know, we've heard so much about the scheme and the players loving it, the new scheme on defense, because it's going to be more aggressive, more attacking. 
um, not as conservative. There was some thought last year that we played so passively in the secondary because Bobby had lost so much sideline to sideline mobility that they had to kind of cover up for that. I, I hope they're true to their word. And, and being a team where they're at in the process, I hope we don't see them play safe tomorrow and care. I th- they will to some extent on offense, like you're saying. Like maybe they'll try not to take too many deep shots, try to control the football, keep it out of Russ's hands. But I really hope we see the makings of a team that's rebuilding and that kind of mindset of letting these kids go for it, letting it all hang out. Because I don't know about you, but I'd rather lose by 10 to this team, but have them take some shots, get after the quarterback, be aggressive, then play a game like they did against Cincinnati and lose by one. Yeah, essentially the defense is going to be, to me, what makes or breaks the willingness to want Carolyn Schneider to still be in charge of this rebuild because the defense has a bit more of the the upside here. We're, we're talking about the secondary, and Adams and Diggs are the established guys, but Tarek Willen might be starting. Don't know yet. Kobe Bryant might be starting at nickel. Um Certainly, we expect to see them on the field yeah. in some capacity on Monday and then throughout the season. Then you have Daryl Taylor in his second full season playing. And you also have Boye Mafe, who flashed some some promise in the opening game of preseason, and then he got hurt the next week. Um, you got Yuchenna Nwosu, who is he was his success with the Chargers mostly attributed to the fact that Bosa's there. Right. And, and, and then you've also got Alton Robinson, hopefully. And then on the interior... I think the interior of the defensive line is their strength because you can play Shelby Harris at end or on the inside. You've got Puna Ford and Brian Monet as run stuffers more so than pass rushers. you got Quentin Jefferson and Al Woods. So that's an area where they have such depth that they don't have to reach into the, you know, LJ Collier, uh, LJ Collier bag and, and, and have to, to actually play him snaps when he's healthy. But the linebacker does worry me. And I know that John Gilbert did a great column on field goals the other day about the, the reduced importance of linebackers in today's NFL, more spread out. You got too many mismatches where linebackers are covering receivers in yeah. unwinnable situations, but you still, they still matter. They're still important. And Brooks, I, I, I liked a lot of what I saw from him last year after a rough start to the season because he got benched a couple of times. Um, but Cody Barton's the wild card because yeah. this is a contract year for him, but through four years, he's been mostly a special teams guy. He has hardly been able to crack the field. And some of it is because Wagner is, of course, Wagner and Wright and then Wagner and Brooks. But now this is his big opportunity. And if he's not cutting the mustard, the backup options of linebacker and off-ball linebacker um, don't really exist. Maybe Julian Peterson's still around. If, if Lofa, if Lofa <laughs> Tupa wants to give it another go, then, then maybe we've, we've got something there. But, you know, I hope they are more aggressive because think about last year. And it almost looked like they were scared of their own roster. Mm-hmm. It's it, it a good way to put it to, to start being competent again. And I think there was some merit to it. Like in defense of Ken Norton, I think they took way too long to give up on Trey Flowers at corner. Mm-hmm. And they shouldn't have had him out there when that's just, it wasn't a strength of his. It was better to just keep him at safety or have him be a big nickel or something instead of an outside corner. Um, it, I mean, it took them 17 weeks for a cornerback to get an interception. And it wasn't a case of, of lack of, you know, it was looking like they weren't even getting close to getting picks. They weren't forcing turnovers. I think they only forced like six fumbles the entire year and only one strip sack. Yeah. So 
if they can get that sort of productivity where they can get turnover opportunities, because you're not always going to get a turnover. Some of it is luck. But if they're being more aggressive with the ball, trying to jump routes instead of just playing so far off the receiver, they can't just concede death by a thousand paper cuts because I got football outsiders almanac with me. They were rock bottom as far as defending underneath routes. Hmm. And I would not want to have defense offense after offense after offense not have to really get into third gear because they're being given five, six yards of free space every time. So if they can make it this year, Clint Hurt and, and Sean Desai and everybody, that this new scheme and the new wrinkles to this defense, which had already shown three, four concepts for, for quite a while now, if mm-hmm. they can be more aggressive, I would be willing to take some of the, if a gamble doesn't pay off, you live with the results, but don't play scared. Yeah. Like, they, like these guys are, are are hungry. They're looking for for opportunities to show that they they belong in the league and they deserve bigger contracts down the line. There's some exciting players on this defense, whether they're established or on the rise. And I hope that this defense could turn itself around because that's Pete Carroll's calling card, and his reputation has got to be re-earned on that front because the post Legion of Boom defenses have been anywhere from average to downright ruinous and it's cost them games it's cost them playoff games to not get critical third down stops so i'm hopeful that the defense can at least be in the top half i'm not expecting an elite defense with this roster but if they can be in the 15th and up range then i i would be i would be satisfied with that what can't happen are repeats of the last couple of years where it looks like they never even practiced together for the first few weeks of the season yeah and yeah you know, it's the last piece of the puzzle. We need to see it on the field Monday night because everything they've done since the season ended last year has been aggressive. Trading Russell Wilson was an aggressive move. The The way that they went after the draft this year, I think, at certain positions in particular, was a, has been very aggressive. The way that they've played their rookies extensively in the preseason is aggressive. Starting two rookie tackles, starting all the rookies and playing all the rookies we're going to see on Monday night is an aggressive move. So now I I just don't want to see us go out and execute a game plan on Monday that's passive. Let's talk about the result. How, with everything being said, everything being taken into account, looking at the two rosters and also the emotional factor at play, how do you see Monday night going? I think it's going to be an intense game. So uh, how do DraftKings have us? Like at, at six-point underdog, that is a pretty significant spread for a home team because they're normally mm-hmm. given three points. I guess now it's one or two points as a home team. But Seahawks have not been a good home team for, for yeah. in front of fans specifically. It's funny. Their best year in, uh, at home over the last few years has been the year where nobody could attend a game. Yeah. Um, but they, I think they were three and five last year. And, uh, you know, 2019, they were four and four. They were like seven and one on the road and four and four at home. Mm-hmm. And 2018, they were six and two. So that was good. But in 2017, I think they were also four and four at home. So the aura of, of Lumenfield, CenturyLink, Questfield, however you want to call it, I think that's starting to slip. But, you know, home field advantage isn't going to mean a whole lot if the team isn't good. What I do believe is that Carroll will have these guys ready at least to, to be competitive, not necessarily win. I expect Denver to win. I wouldn't rule out an upset, but I can see this game being close through three quarters and then just a critical turnover here or a bad yeah. penalty here and there, and then they can snowball and Denver pulls away late for like a, I don't know, a 31-17 type of win that will be disappointing to, uh, as a way of starting off the season, but there could be some silver lines you could take away from a loss. And that's going to be how we're going to describe a lot of Seahawks games this year. 
can we find the silver lining? So if you're a new fan out there and you're listening and you weren't there for the end of the Holmgren era, which is miserable to watch because everybody got hurt. The team was bad mm-hmm. or the Mora era where everybody was bad and nobody enjoyed the football. There are going to be some games that are just going to look straight up terrible. But down the line, and this is a case for a lot of teams that are not expected to be good. There are going to be some games where Seattle is going to be an underdog and they pull off a surprise win. And there are going to be some games like, say, Atlanta or the Giants or Carolina against another team that's expected to be bad. Yeah. And then they take a brutal loss. So that's going to be how the season goes. And then everything else will just be kind of chalky. So maybe I'm hoping, of course, I want my team to win. I'm not in team tank. Uh, I, I want this team to, to surprise everybody in the action green and beat Denver. It's less of beating Wilson. It's more of just beat the Broncos because they've been cocky as hell all week about how they're just going to come to Seattle and, and, and storm the field and, and dominate. But I think they'll win, but Seattle's going to make them work for it. And if they can make them work for it, that'll be cool with me. Yeah, I'm I'm in the same boat. I've tried to talk myself into this, you know, as recently as maybe a month ago. I was pretty convinced they had a good shot to win this. I just, the more I look at it, they're just going to be playing so many young players at key positions. And that Chubb-Gregory-Cross-Lucas matchup is going to be key. And, and, and those guys are going to get to Smith at times. I, I do think they'll make it interesting. I, I think it's funny because I think most of the world is going to be fo- laser focused on the play of the quarterback. But to me, and I think guys like you and Dana and probably a lot of the guys at field goals, we're the exact opposite. Like to me, the, the play of the quarterback's irrelevant. I need to see the rest of the roster look like it's a roster capable of being built into something that a good quarterback can support. Um, I do think the crowd's going to be crazy. I do think the uh, the information and, and the the familiarity that Carroll and Waldron have with Russ can be put to use. Um, but I think ultimately they'll keep it close unless, unless they get a bunch of turnovers early, some crazy things happen. They get to Russ a bunch of times, the pass rush is on fire and they get a big lead and can, can somehow hold on. I think ultimately the youth is going to show itself and that Broncos offense, regardless of how good or poorly you think Russ is going to do or how upset you are that he's even there in the first place. They're pretty stacked great. Two great running backs, bunch of good receivers and weapons. there, a solid enough offensive line. They're going to find their way over the course of the game to pull it out. Um, I'm just hoping that when we recap this game next week, we got a bunch of positives to look back on, even if it doesn't include winning on the scoreboard. I, I see it being a 10 point game. Mm-hmm. Well, I tell you what, another fact we've not talked about special teams. And they looked special teams was was been really good over the last couple of years for the Seahawks it was dreadful for a good chunk of this preseason. Yeah, whether it was the returners or Myers having a, a, a miss or, or just bad or touchbacks that should have never happened or muff punts, what have you, bad kick coverage, bad punt coverage. I think that'll sort itself out. Myers, I'm less I'm you know, he's been iffy throughout his career. Some years he's really good. Other years he's not so good. Yeah. Confident in Michael Dixon is can the return teams, can they make a difference? Can D. Eskridge make a difference as a punt returner? He should be more dynamic than Freddie Swain or, you know, fair catch Freddie, I guess. Yeah. And even even in kick returns that, you know, less important now that most of them are touchbacks. But still, it's little things that can help you win games, even if mm-hmm. you got a talent disadvantage. If you could do little things here and there, get a turnover uh, on defense or you can get a big kick return or punt return that leads to good field position. Those things can add up and and, and spring a surprise result. So uh, I'm 
fascinated by this matchup. I cannot wait for it. I just want to know who's going to raise the uh, the flag. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's still a mystery to everybody. Uh, you could go with Sue Bird because she's her wonderful Ooh, career capped one. off. Um, you could go for the next Seahawk. Uh, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like Sue's raised it before, but they've had repeat flag raisers. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, KJ Wright would be an interesting one. Um, Chris Carson. Yeah, yeah. Chris Carson might be a really, especially because he's he's Russ's buddy. Uh, I'm, I'm, I am glad you brought up special teams real quickly, though, because um, because I it will be interesting to see. We've talked about okay. What's going to be the mindset this year, right? It's clearly, they're not going to admit it, clearly a rebuilding year. If it wasn't, if they really thought they could win with this roster, they would have gone and gotten Baker Mayfield or Matt Ryan for a fifth round pick. That's all it costs. They didn't. And so it's kind of, they're kind of doing a soft tank. But what's going to happen on fourth downs, right? What's going to happen uh, when they're in position for a 54-yard field goal and it's a close game? Is is Pete going to defer to his conservative nature in those situations, or is he going to let caution kind of toss caution to the wind a little bit more because he wants to show these guys sort of that winning attitude? Uh, but also, we're talking about this being a revenge game, right, in regards to Russell Wilson. Are we overlooking the fact that this is also a Michael Dixon revenge game? Because, Dixon because it was the Denver Broncos who were caught on their war room, war room camera laughing that the Seahawks traded up to get Michael Dixon the year they drafted him. Oh, I forgot about that. You know, yeah, don't he, tell me gonna, Michael Dixon's forgot about that. It's Michael Jordan. I took it personally, mode. he's going <laughs> to, he's going to end the Broncos inside the five yard line with, with every punt he has, including from at the shadow of his own goal line. But yeah, you know, that would be the greatest trolling that Carroll could do uh, because I've been a proponent and, and I don't know your take on this, but Carroll has been way too passive on fourth down decisions. Oh. And all these years he's done it with Wilson. Yeah. He's not been aggressive enough. It would be an amazing troll job if this is the year with Geno Smith at quarterback or Drew Locke down the line if he gets some run, right. that he eschews his conservative nature and decides fourth and one at the other team's 41-yard line, yeah. we're not going to punt. We're going to go for this thing, baby. And he just does it repeatedly, and he becomes one of the more aggressive fourth down coaches in the league. That that would be an all-time troll job in the same way that the way that this offensive line has been rebuilt could be a troll job in yeah. itself. Like, wow, you've done all these things we wanted when Wilson was quarterback, <laughs> but now we don't have Wilson anymore. I would I would almost have to tip my cap to it for that. But yes, if you're not going to be a good team, I think that's all the more reason to not be conservative. You you know, of course, you don't want to be reckless and be stupid with it. Yeah. But you've got to, especially in, in today's NFL, where offenses are easier than ever before just go for it. I mean, there's no point differential tiebreaker that's up there. It's way down in the list of, of tiebreakers scenarios. It doesn't matter if you lose by 10 or by 50, like try and go and win the game. Don't play not to lose. I hadn't even thought in terms of trolling, you know, there's so many other things they could do too. They could let uh, Gino run no huddle offense a couple of times. They, uh, and then the ultimate troll job would be if Gino stays upright the whole time and the, the two highly drafted uh, rookie tackles play great. And, uh, and the Broncos pass rush can't get to Smith. Um, they, they could troll us all <laughs> by running a good screen pass for once. They can. And I, and honestly, I think we talked about that on the show the other day. I think that's something we saw out of both Locke and Smith in the preseason that, that maybe that's a ball they throw a little bit better than Russ. It's, Look, it's going to be it's going to be entertaining. It's going to be phenomenal. I can't wait to go to the stadium. Uh, I never even thought about selling my tickets, uh, no matter how much they were going for. It's probably the type of game that I'll I'll uh, record and, and come home and watch three or four times too. I'll uh, 
definitely hop on and, and give a rapid reaction to it Monday night. And then uh, we'll be back on Tuesday to do a full recap. Uh, Mookie, why don't you tell everybody uh, what the the readers can find on the site as we uh, cover all aspects of this game leading into Monday night? Well, uh, for, for the rest of this weekend, we've got a, a game preview that's uh, gone up with the Mile High Reports, the, the Broncos SB Nation site. So a five Qs and five As uh, exchange that we've, we've done for years with the opposition SB Nation site throughout the season. John Gilbert is doing that this year. So you can be on the lookout for that, maybe get a little more intel on how things have gone on Denver's side of a preseason and, and training camp. Uh, we'll have other game previews and, and a prediction and also uh, – Enemy reaction has been a staple of field goals for as long as I've been around. So I'm going to do a little look back at the 2021 season, or at least the best one. It's the ones, the games that we won. And then uh, just to troll the Rams a little bit more, have a little look at how they reacted to their opening day blowout loss against the Buffalo Ooh. Bills. Because I tell you what, we might not have too many wins this year, but every Rams loss feels like a win to the Seahawks. <laughs> Diddle for the Niners. All right, and you can find him at Mookie Alexander on Twitter. Thanks for joining me, Mookie. We will uh, we will talk to you again after the game on uh, Monday night briefly, and then we'll do a full recap on Tuesday. Until then, I am Dan Viennes. You can find me on Twitter at Seahawks Forever. Enjoy the game, everybody. We'll see you next week.